I don't know, Christianity just doesn't seem rational to me. I just don't get it. Like, there, there's so much stuff that doesn't make any sense. It seems like it's really anti-women. As a woman, if I'm gonna be a Christian, does that mean I'm less than? Is it just me, or does the Bible seem completely outdated? outdated. All this stuff about slavery and women being mistreated. And it seems like Christians completely ignore science. Doesn't the Bible teach you to hate people who don't think the same way you do? Well, I want to say good morning to everybody in this room and everybody who's joining us online, people at all of our campuses all over the Bay Area. Uh, I'm thrilled you're here, and especially this weekend. We've been thinking about uh, very important questions, and one of them has to do with faith, knowing God, and then science, knowing nature, knowing creation, and do they fit together? Are they compatible? Are they in tension? How should we hold them? The Bible said a long time ago, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And a lot of folks in our day wonder, is that actually true? So we have a fabulous guest to have a conversation about that with. Kyle Van Houten is the director of science at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. How many people have ever been to the Monterey Bay Aquarium? Wow, vast majority of folks who are here. Uh, he is the, he's like the big tuna at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, is, I think his technical title. Uh, and he oversees the research, leads the scientific team there. Uh, he also holds adjunct professorship at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. His research explores global change, biodiversity conservation, historical ecology, and ethics. In 2012, he actually received the Presidential Early Career Award for scientists and engineers for his pioneering research on uh, how climate regulates sea turtle populations. He got a Master of Science from Stanford University, and when he was working there, he was actually not only attending our church, uh, he was on staff and did an internship at our church. Uh, he got a PhD from Duke University, and because he was so interested in not only science but also faith, he walked over to the Divinity School and got a degree from Duke Divinity School as well. Uh, he did postdoc at Emory University. His work has been featured on National Public Radio, PBS NewsHour, The New York Times, Nature, Science, Wired, Smithsonian, The Scientific American, and now Menlo Church. Uh, he lives in Pacific Grove, California with a wife and two children. Um, you are going to love hearing from him. It's fascinating. So, Kyle, I'm going to ask you to come on up. And this is like one of our own. So would you all make him feel really at home and let him know how glad you are that he's here. Hey. And I can tell you just from having this experience, the only frustration is... Uh, we could talk about this topic, faith and science, together for hours and hours. Kyle, say just a word about the work that you've been doing and what's been going on since you left working here. Okay, so great. It's uh, wonderful to be back. Yeah. yeah, this is a home for me and my wife. I met my wife here. We were both on staff here. I was in the college ministry and she was in junior high ministry. We so were... the church gave you your wife? Correct. Yeah, that was part of the deal when I signed up. You're welcome. Yeah. It's a great ministry you have here. So <laughs> we um, know in, in all seriousness, a hugely important time in my life being yeah. here. Um, today, I have the privilege of serving as the science director at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Our mission is to inspire conservation of the ocean 
And I just love that mission. I love the way it's phrased. And I love that our job is to inspire people to care about something. It's like the easiest thing to do to inspire someone about the ocean. Mm. You just like 10 words in and you, you got them hooked, you know. Um, the thing I love about the aquarium is that so many people come and just have this massive smile on their face when they're walking around and just like in, in awe of what they're seeing. Because few people actually get to go into the ocean and see it. And that's kind of why we're there, is just to show them the glory. When I interviewed for the job, it was um, the same room where I spoke to your staff, packed with people. And I said, I don't know if you guys see it this way, but what you have is a cathedral for the ocean. And, and I saw all these smiles went around. And, um, but it's a great joy to be there. There is this wonderful spirit of innovation we have. And uh, you may have gotten in trouble at work for showing our live camera feeds on one of your desktop screens. Um, we have, if you, if you don't, maybe you will this week since I've told you about it. We have sea otter cams, we have jellyfish cameras, we have our kelp forest um, camera. But the, uh, the jellyfish cam, which you see right there, um, there's a spirit of innovation I said at the aquarium. Uh, these animals are not used to living in the environment where we have them. They're not used to a walls or glass, obviously, in the ocean. And one of the great things is the engineers and the aquarists that we have have not only figured out a way to get these animals to live where they are here at, at the aquarium, but also to thrive. It's fascinating to see what showing people the glory of these jellyfish and, and other animals has on, on the visitors. It's just a great privilege. It's so wonderful. I remember the philosopher Dallas Willard wrote one time about how we love uh, to have an, anybody here ever have a little goldfish in a bowl or any kind of fish and, like we love that. Imagine what it is like to be God and see whales and jellyfish in oceans every moment. And he was writing about reflecting on that and he said, it sounds strange, but suddenly I found myself quite happy for God. Hmm. And that image of having a cathedral of the ocean, uh, I think, is wonderful in many ways. So you've been amazing places, done amazing things. You've seen parrots in the Amazon where you actually got a flesh-eating disease. And uh, sea turtles in Hawaii, that was difficult service for Jesus. Uh, and uh, antelope in Africa. So share a couple of highlights about what you've been up to since you were here. So, um, yes, when I was a kid... Um, I just dreamed of going to the Amazon. It was, it was always been something that has been like a desire of mine. I grew up in Virginia, outside Washington, D.C. We would take field trips into all the wonderful museums in the district. And one of them, uh, besides the Museum of Natural History and the Smithsonian, was the National Gallery of Art right next door. And uh, there's a massive, large format painting of the Amazon there by Frederick Church. And I got one of those prints at the museum store, and I scotch-taped it above my desk when I was a kid. And I still have it above my desk today um, because it was just like this tractor beam that was like pulling me into the painting. And um, every time I look at that painting, I see something new. And going to the Amazon was uh, for my, when I was here at Stanford is when I first went and started doing research there. It was when I was doing the parrots that you mentioned. And yes, I did get quite ill there, and it had to end my journey uh, a little bit earlier than I thought. But there are some amazing things I've seen. Um, in the, the middle of the South Pacific is a place called Rose Atoll. It's actually part of the United States. Huh. You may not be aware of that. It's the southernmost point of the United States in American Samoa. And um, it is this pinnacle that comes out of the deep ocean. And at the very, very tippy top, there's this little coral atoll. And I just remember being in the lagoon of that atoll. We were out there again serving Jesus, you know, snorkeling in a coral atoll. 
And um, <laughs> in the middle of the South Pacific, and just thinking, I'm in this lagoon, in the middle of this atoll, and there's a coral pinnacle in there, and we were snorkeling around it and just free diving, and just seeing the corals and the fish and the turtles there, and just thinking, we are in the middle of a very deep ocean on this just tiny little chimney of mm -hmm. coral. And it just seems so fragile, and yet such an amazingly privileged experience to be able to go out there. So that was a, an exhilarating time. Um, but I've had very effective you know, times as well where I've been in a place and said, wow, like this is, this is pretty unreal. Um, on the border of South Africa in Zimbabwe is a town called Messina. And it is one of the most, busiest international borders on, the, in the, on Earth. And it's very militarized. There's an army checkpoint. And I remember we didn't go into Zimbabwe. We were in South Africa. And we were kind of skirting around this road. We kind of went by. And, and it was, um, it's, it's well known for having very high infection rates of HIV. It's not a very fun place to be. And we're going by this. And just this image of this highly militarized razor wire guards you know, guns and everything. And we sort of scooted down the road a couple kilometers to this uh, nature preserve that we we're going to. And I remember uh, our car stopped and we were looking at some wildlife. I think it was a bird that one of my colleagues was looking at. All our cars stopped. And I looked off to the other side, which was across the border. And along these rows of, of razor wire, it just looked like something like San Quentin or like this maximum security prison. And I remember seeing this troop of baboons just running right through that razor wire as if, as if it wasn't even there. And I just remember thinking, like, wow, like, how did they do that? And it just was amazing to me, like, the, uh, the sort of juxtaposition of, like, this kind of prison kind of facility. And then these wild animals just being wild and running through it was, it was very powerful. Wow. Um, so it seems like science uh, consistently leads you to wonder, which is just not far from worship. And uh, so that gets into this issue that we really wanted to talk about, uh, which is the relationship between faith and science. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of your background, because you had a chance to study in the way that you have, uh, you're able to speak to this in kind of a unique fashion. What first got you interested in faith? Mm -hmm. And then what first got you interested in science? And uh, did you find a tension between being a scientist and being a person of faith? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I actually had to learn that there was a tension. It wasn't my experience. When I grew up in a Christian home, uh, my mom and my dad were believers. We went to church ever since I was a little kid. My grandparents were believers. Um, and uh, I spent some summers with my grandfather on his farm in Missouri. And he was a very strong uh, Christian. He was actually a head of a missionary training camp in northwest Missouri and sold insurance and tended cattle and you know, was a postmaster at some point. He was a man of all trades. But um, I would spend time with him out in the pastures and just talking with him about stewardship of creation. And that is where that language, since I was a very young kid, uh, was sort of imbued in my oh. psyche, right? And, uh, and so that was the frame that I had. Uh, my mom refused to let me play video games so even though I, I pressed her many times, so she kicked me outside and said, go outside. That's your playground. That's your video game. And we lived on a lake. And uh, there's trees and turtles and fish and frogs like everywhere. And it was like this wonderful playground for me to sort of explore. And I was constantly like, getting in trouble for coming back with dirt all over the place, mud up to my you know, knees and stuff. And my mom, and there's a 
many stories like this, but one of which is when she threw all my muddy clothes into the washing machine and left the lid open top loader, you know, back in the day. And, um, and a bunch of caterpillars floated to the top because I'd like stuff them in my pockets. <laughs> and, um, and <laughs> so you were not a great steward of caterpillars. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. There's a lot of caterpillars out there, I guess, yeah. you know, so uh, I was trying to understand them better in my own way. I was very young. <laughs> by uh, putting them in your pocket. By putting them in my pocket. Yeah. So saving them for later. So the um, going to university was, uh, was, um, was big for me. When I, was, when I was a kid, at the same time that I was learning about stewardship of creation, stuffing caterpillars in my pockets, I, um, I learned about this word extinction hmm. and that... I remember just being sort of haunted by the idea that something could disappear from the earth forever, that the bald eagle, like our national symbol, was threatened. And I remember just feeling like, just sort of like really psychologically disturbed by this. And it kind of marked me. And when I went off to university, so I made it a goal, like I want to study environmental conservation, stewardship creation, because I don't want extinction to happen. Extinction is obviously a bad thing. And um, I learned that the word extinction actually did not originate in some scientific journal. It originated in the Book of Common Prayer, in the baptismal prayer for children, that the pouring of the water on the child would render thy sins extinct, would put out the fire of their sin, would extinguish it like a candle, right? And I was like, okay, that's not a scientific word. Um, And it just started, it was sort of like a pinprick into my mind, like there is more here to extinction than just some scientific description. Wow. So uh, then you ended up coming to Stanford uh, and got involved at uh, Menlo Church. So tell us a little bit like that. And if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about how you met your wife here at the church. Sure. Thank you for asking me that question. So um, being at Stanford, was a, I was a late bloomer, and um, it was a hugely rich time for me. The fellowship and the community in the college ministry that uh, Menlo ran at the time was incredibly important for me, just to be able to ask questions and to think about not just a career or education, but vocation. What is vocation? What is God calling me to do? I've had a lot of privileges in people training me and experiences that I've had. What am I going to use this for? And I started to think about uh, Frederick Beekner's term, a phrase that he said, God's calling for your life is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Mm. God's calling for your life is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And that's what vocation, I started to think about that. And I was struggling with this idea like, wow, there's something more to studying, you know, biology and the rainforest than, than, um, than science. Do I, do I go to divinity school and do I go into the church or do I go and get a PhD and become a professor and just teach biology? That's kind of the track that I had been on. And, and I, uh, at that time... I uh, had some time with Dallas Willard, uh, someone you know very well, and, and I just laid this out before him, and he just had this kind of smile on his face, and he sat there and he said, you know, I was presented, I had a very similar struggle. You know, I know your circumstance that you're wrestling with right now. And a very wise man sat me down and said, you know, don't choose, do both. And so I was very fortunate that I got a chance to go to Duke where they have a divinity school and they have a school of the environment. And my advisor, who I recruited me to go to Duke, said, come work with me and you can do both. And I'm probably the only person that's gonna let you do that. So make, the, make, make a good choice here. And, um, and so I prayed about it a lot. I was working at Menlo at the time. 
It is where I met my wife, Kelly, and um, she, I met her when she came up to me one day to let me know that I have a little bit of a, um, a, a class clown sort of side to me, and she said, you know, you're, you're sort of joking around too much with the staff, and it, it's kind of hurting some of their feelings. So you may just want to think about how you're joking around with people. And, uh, you know, it's, our relationship hasn't changed at all in 20 years, you know. <laughs> so, the wonderful, and so, um, and I knew at that time that uh, God was calling huh. her and me to a life together and that he was going to save us through each other. So, yes. That's, so thank you for that. That's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, we're actually talking about spiritual gifts next week. So if you have the spiritual gift of admonishment, uh, <laughs> it could lead to spouse selection. You never know. So don't miss that one. Uh, which leads us to just uh, this fascinating relationship between faith and science. Mm -hmm. There's a, an organization, a ministry, a scientist named Francis Collins helped get started called BioLogos. And I remember going to one of the first meetings and uh, in talking with scientists who are people of faith, they would often describe being kind of lonely because they would say, as a scientist, if I talk about my faith with my scientific colleagues, that may feel kind of uh, isolating. But then if I go to my community of faith and talk about science, uh, often in churches or communities of faith, people are a little skeptical about that. So what about you? How does your faith inform the way that you approach science? Mm -hmm. And how does your involvement in science affect your faith in God? Um, it's a great question. I feel, I've definitely felt what you're talking about right there. And um, I would say that the passage that Paul writes, that he has become all things to all people so that th by every means he may save some. Mm. So I felt like that when I come to a church, I want to authentically say, I am one of you. And when I go into a scientific department in a university, I can authentically say, I am one of you. And that has been my goal, to be able to do that faithfully and truly and to embody that. Um, when I, uh, I have training in theology and in, um, and in science, and I've been very fortunate to have one-on-one -on -one mentoring with some, some very knowledgeable people who spent time with me. And uh, I wasn't always this way. I'm the product of so many people who've invested in me. And um, in the theology side, I learned just really to pay so much more careful attention to argument and to words and to just phrases and just to dwell in phrases and just to learn that words do work. Like words themselves are not neutral. They take a side. And what I mean by that is you think of like the passage in John 3.16. We all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That for God so loved the world is originally written in Greek, and it's for God so loved the cosmos, which is the entire universe. We often take that passage and think of it as a very personal, human, individual salvation, like it's for me. It is for you, and it is for me, but it is for the universe. So training in theology helped me to sort of understand that and to understand when people make an argument, what they're really trying to say and what their argument rests on, it may be in a way that they haven't even thought about. So, um, but it hasn't always been easy. You know, when I was at, in the Nicholas School at Duke, I'm in a science department, that was where my home was, and I had an office mate for a time that um, was not studying in the Divinity School. I was the only one in my cohort that was moving back and forth. So you were kind of weird. I was super weird, I still yeah. am. And, 
Um, and she said, you know, I totally don't get you. You're like, you know, you're a weirdo. You're going over to divinity school. That makes no sense to me. I understand when you're going to the Amazon, you're studying birds and stuff. I totally get that part. But I, who's Kierkegaard? Like, what does that book have anything to do with what you're doing on extinction? And, and so we had this conversation, which is about over in an hour or so, and I won't belabor the details, but it kind of went like this. I said, so tell me what your dissertation's on. And she says, well, I work on uh, these uh, mycorrhiza, which are these organisms that live on the roots of pine trees in the Duke Forest. This is like a fungus that attaches to the roots, and it helps the pine tree get nutrients out of the ground. And I was like, I totally get that. Why is that important? And she's like, um, because it helps us understand how nitrogen moves around in the ground. And I said, OK, I'm with you. Why is that important? And she said, well, because it helps us understand how nitrogen moves around in the atmosphere. And I was like, OK, why is that important? And she said, well, um, because it helps us understand the global cycle of nitrogen and how it all works. And I said, OK, that sounds big. Um, why is that important? And she said, well, it helps us understand the global carbon cycle. And I said, well, why is that important? And she said, well, I think it's because we can link that to the global climate cycle and how that all works. And I said, why is that important? And she said, well, I think it's because you know, climate change is happening, and we want to understand how that works. And I said, well, why is that important? And she said, I guess because I don't want human beings to go extinct. And I, and I said, well, let's just stop there, because we could go on. But what I'm doing is trying to start with where you just ended and move the other way to some particular scientific investigation or question that attaches to some good or just purpose. That's what I'm trying to do. And she's like, OK, I get it now. So. <laughs> but we were starting with fungus growing on roots and pine trees in a sandy North Carolina But just if, if a mind is curious enough to keep probing, science will raise questions that ultimately will lead to a question that science cannot answer. Mm. Like, why does it matter that humanity not go extinct? And that gets us into realms of faith and God. And I, I just thought it was fascinating. So often, uh, those of us who are not scientists will think science deals with data, information, and knowledge, but faith does not. It doesn't deal with knowledge or truth. And to know from somebody who deals in both realms mm. that evidence and data are just as important for Correct. faith yeah. in God, Correct. even though we often don't use words like evidence or data. Exactly. I think that one of the things when you have this, it's faith. It's not faith and science when you usually see it. It's faith versus science. Like uh. Some celebrity death match, you know, and um, like Tyrannosaurus versus the white shark kind of thing. And uh, um, I think that um, for me, what happens when that, when that construct gets put out there as if belief and faith um, are contrasted with evidence. And yeah. Science has evidence yes. and faith has no evidence. And that is as I will look at all of you and say, you have evidence, mm. you have data for your faith. You may not refer to it that way, and it may sort of seem to cheapen it or belittle it, but you do have evidence, and you do have a witness. Scientists are people, too, and our witness is ultimately in the data. And one of the things I tell my staff at the aquarium is, your job is to faithfully advocate the data in front of you and to tell their story. Huh. Right? That is our job as scientists, is to faithfully do that. 
Now, as Christians, our job is to faithfully narrate our lives through the data that we have and the sensibilities that God has given us through the scriptures, through teaching, um, through songs, through the practices and the virtues of Christian life. But that's a very important thing. It's just because you're Christian and you may not be a scientist, you still have evidence and you still have data um, for your faith. Probably the uh, hot button topic that people think about most in our day uh, would involve evolution and faith. And a lot of people think you have to choose because of that between faith and science or between believing in the Bible uh, and believing in evolution. Mm. And you're in a unique position to be able to speak to that. So uh, uh, how do you think about evolution and being a person of faith? So it's obviously, it's going to come up. You can't, like, you can't skirt around this yeah. issue. It's, a, it's very important, I think. You know, Darwin... Um, you have to start with Darwin, in my opinion. And uh, I taught a course at Emory on Darwin, and I called it Darwin's Great Books. And what we did is we read everything that Darwin wrote. Huh. And it was not just to understand him as a scientist or a naturalist, but understand him as a person. And scientists are people, too. And I, um, one of the things that you spoke on suffering last week, Darwin was a man that was very acquainted personally with suffering. He lost his mom, whom he was very close to um, when she, uh, from sickness when she was young. He lost one of his daughters, who he was very close to uh, from sickness when she was young. When he was traveling in the tropics and doing his work on the Beagle, um, the boat that he was on, he, uh, many experts believe that he got a tropical uh, disease that stayed with him the rest of his life and debilitated him and, he, and kind of rendered him... Um, kind of sick or an invalid for, for the rest of his life. And I think that one of the things that Darwin wrestled with was uh, this suffering that I'm experiencing and I have experienced is not just for me personally as an individual. It is a cosmic reality. The universe, all of the earth is suffering. And that's what he saw in his trips. And I would just say to you personally that if you feel that way, if you've had deep suffering in your life, you have tapped into a deep truth about this universe, that it is broken. Mm. You are not onto something that's false. You are onto something that is, that is our existence. And Darwin had that very same experience, and he could not escape it, and his faith did not survive. He didn't, he didn't see the suffering and crucified and resurrected Savior. He didn't see that, and his faith didn't endure. But in terms of his work, um, you know, I would say the first 11 chapters of Genesis which is um, where a significant amount of attention gets paid to um, evolution and creation um, in this debate, is um, much of that is written in, uh, in, is in a non-literal language. And so to take that, um, to, to take a faithful reading of those passages is not in tension with an evolutionary account of the earth. And vice versa, an evolutionary account really is not in tension with Christianity, I think is where it rises to where evolution, as you say, with a capital E, mm -hmm. um, where it rises to a worldview is where we start to have tensions. And what I would say as Christians, you know, the narrative arc of the Bible in the life of Jesus Christ is his incarnation, like on Christmas morning, um, his crucifixion and resurrection on Easter. That move from incarnation, crucifixion, to resurrection is the narrative arc that we need to pay attention to. For me, evolution via natural selection or Darwinian evolution is, is part of, in the middle there. It's that part that we know about that crucifixion, that suffering part where there's something coming from something, 
a species evolving into a new species, but as an ultimate cosmological story of origins or an ultimate purpose and the end or the culmination of history, I don't think evolution speaks to that. So uh, we don't want to learn just about topics. You know, when we gather together, we want to learn how do we honor God, how do we obey God, uh, and this weekend in particular, how do we care about uh, what it is that God has made. And it's interesting, for some reason, uh, when you hear about the word or the cause of environmentalism, mm. it doesn't get connected with being a disciple of Jesus. Mm. Um, that hasn't always been true. Maybe the most popular Christian figure between the early first century church and now is Francis of Assisi. Mm -hmm. And Francis was famous for uh, feeling this tremendous connection to all of creation. And mm -hmm. there are stories about him preaching the gospel to little animals mm -hmm. and and writing poetry to Father, Son, Sister, Moon, and so. But in our day, that connection has been kind of severed. So talk a little bit about, uh, uh, as a follower of Jesus, what does it mean to care for his creation? And then just on a real practical level, for anybody here who wants to do a better job of being a disciple of Jesus in caring for what God made, what can we do? How can we make a difference? Well, one of the... The, the Bible is replete with evidence and with passages to support this. And I think people always go to Genesis just as a default, like we were just talking about. But if you ask me, like, where in the Bible you would go to find guidance on this, I would say the Gospel of John has been very influential for me. Romans, Colossians, Galatians, it talks about, you know, the, the law of sin and death on the, on the earth, the creation groaning. Of course, Genesis is pretty important. Um, but even the Psalms, Job, uh, the book of Ruth. Um, but in Genesis, in the first chapter, uh, it's very important. It says, let us create humankind in our likeness. Let them have dominion. And those two sentences are really the same sentence said twice in a different way. Mm. Let us create humankind in our image, in our likeness, let them have dominion. The word dominion is the Hebrew word radah, R-A-D-A-H. And what it means is like to be a viceroy, a vice regent, and uh, reigning in the king's place when the king isn't there. King's oh. gone, viceroy is in charge, right? And that's what dominion means. It's to imitate or to represent the king. And one of the illustrations I give on that, um, I like to journal. I carry these things around with me. They're pretty nondescript. And to keep them, tell them apart, I usually put stickers on them. And um, I have a thing for stickers. But this is a monarch butterfly. I'm from Pacific Grove, California. There's a monarch grove there. Some of you have probably seen it. There's a monarch festival. There's a monarch parade. There's a lot of monarch things down there. Um, the monarch butterfly, the monarch is the king, monarch, right? And there's a butterfly that looks exactly like this. And it's a different species, and it's called a viceroy. And it's called a viceroy because it looks like the monarch. It resembles the king. It mimics the king, right? And that's what dominion is. Dominion is mimicry to the king, to Jesus. And that's what we are called to do. That's what dominion is, is to have the likeness of God. Now, that is a very different version mm. of Genesis 1.26 than you've probably heard. It is not a license to pillage and destroy oh. and to subjugate. It is an invitation to become like Jesus. But outside of that, uh, one of the most fascinating passages for me in the Bible on this is the book of Jonah. And I love the book of Jonah. Um, and it's not because I come from Monterey with his whales 365. 
Um, but uh, the are reason there are, whales there 365? 365 days of the year, oh, you can see I whales. Love whales. Yeah, wow. it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, if you've ever done it, it's a pretty astounding thing to see a whale in the wild ocean jumping out. It's amazing. So no, no one's invited me to go do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid you get seasick. Not even people who found their wife here at our church. No yeah. one. <laughs> So, but uh, an open invitation, John, if you'd like to come. To... So, um, just take your drama meme. Um, so, uh, the book of Jonah, it's like 47, 48 verses. It's a very quick read. But it's a fascinating story of God using someone who is quite imperfect and is not very obedient and yet uses him to do great things. And just if you look at the sermon that, that Jonah gives, it's like the worst sermon ever and potentially like the most effective. Um, so it just shows you how God uses somebody. But what I love about Jonah is the challenge there uh, to, have, to let God's grace and compassion be extended not just to your enemy, but to all of creation. The book ends with God saying, why would I not be, you know, to Jonah, Jonah, why would I not be cared? Why would I not care about this great city? Why would I not care about all the cattle within it, right? And so it's like an invitation to us is to care not only about um, other people, not even just our friends, but our enemies, but also all of creation. So what can people go home and do? People say, okay, I want to do a better job, take a single step to do a better job to care because it's, it's my father's world. Hmm. Uh, give us a little guidance. Last question. So I think that we, one of the things, we have a paper coming out in a few weeks at the Journal of Science Advances. We've looked at global trafficking in marine wildlife, uh, my team at the aquarium and some people from Hawaii. And what we found, we learned a lot in this process. And what was amazing about this is we found that the global trafficking of sea turtle shells and uh, rhino horns and, and all sorts of illegal things, they are enmeshed within this larger network uh, global networks of human trafficking, arms trafficking, narco trafficking. Mm. And when you are sitting at a sushi restaurant or when you are at the counter at your favorite market about to buy some fish, you may not think those things are at stake, but they are. And so to be mindful about the choices that you make to know where the things, what you're supporting, where it comes from, what is the traceability, um, what is the provenance? Is it sustainable? Is it verified? Does it have blockchain? You know, all those things. Um, and because you may not be, you may be unwittingly supporting something that is very nefarious that you would have no desire to participate in just by buying proper, improperly sourced seafood. It's very important for you to do that. We have guidance at the Monterey Bay Aquarium with Seafood Watch. There is an app. And you can, wherever you are, can say, what is the most sustainable choice that I can make, not only for that fish population, not only for the place where it came from, but also ensuring you know, its footprint or the risk of human slavery that may be involved in that fishery. I'd never thought till you talked about this, uh, you know, one of the great words in the Bible is shalom, the webbing together of all of creation and mm -hmm. human beings into wholesome harmony with each other and mm -hmm. God. And so sin then... Uh, Neil Plantinga says, is the culpable violation of shalom. Mm. And uh, that from human mm. trafficking to drug trafficking mm. to arms trafficking to uh, the illegal sales of uh, wildlife, and so all of those tend to be webbed together. And there's a big story this last weekend about kind of a high-profile guy who was soliciting prostitution, mm. and that's ended up being connected to human trafficking. Mm -hmm. 
all of those things tend to go together. And so when we ask God's help to live holy lives, mm -hmm. uh, you all, we all become agents of shalom together in ways that enhance the world that God loves. Mm -hmm. um, we're so indebted to you. We're going to take a moment now to worship God as our creator. Uh, in the Bible, very often, Psalm 19 is one of those places, there will be praise for God the creator and then praise for God's moral law. And the idea there is a really important one, that there is an intrinsic connection between the way that things are, creation, and the way that things are supposed to be. Moral goodness mm -hmm. and physical reality are one because they come from one God. And so to love him and de delight in what he made because we get to know him better is an important part of worshiping God. We often, when we think about worship, we think about music, but it's so much bigger. And part of it is to just delight in creation. So we're going to look at some images. And uh, they are expressions, reminders of what an awesome thing God's creation is. Hmm. And I want to invite you as we look at those for just a couple of minutes that you connect the dots. And think about the God who's here right now, mm. who made you and made his world, and express wonder and mm. thank him that he made all this, that he didn't have to, and worship him. As we get ready to do that, would you also thank our friend Kyle for being willing to be here and teach us about what a wonderful God we have. Thanks. 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 Thanks, brother. Yeah.